There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Can't stand when you get that. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 10. If you remember last time, they had hitched up these two cows to see if they would go straight and uh, toward Beth Shemesh, and that's where we're picking up there in verse 10. It says, Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart. And shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went. They did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And stood there, a large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, and which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonged to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the man of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Lord, we thank you once again that we have the privilege of listening to your word and that it can make a difference in our lives. And I pray it would just do that, Lord. We're all at different places in our walk with you. I pray that this word would do what it needs to make us transformed a little bit more to your image. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Welcome back to our study in 1 Samuel. We left our story last week with the Philistines in sore distress. Because they had stolen the ark, they had been severely afflicted with the Lord, which, depending on your translation, either boils plagues or hemorrhoids. We can't be completely dogmatic about which one of those it was, although with that trifecta, any one of them has the potential of ruining your weekend. The last thing we looked at last week was sort of the pagan equivalent of laying out a fleece by sending out the cows. So that's where we are this morning. And personally, I'm thankful that today will be the last time I have to say the word hemorrhoid from behind this pulpit. Look at verse 10 with me. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their cows at home. 
And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest of the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Bethshemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went. They did not turn aside to the right or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Bethshemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were reaping their harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. The first thing I want us to notice is the fact that the Philistines put the ark on a cart. Now that is not the correct way to transport the ark. In Exodus chapter 25, God has given the way the ark should have been transported. It says, And you should put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles will remain in the rings of the ark. They should not be removed from it. So the ark was not to be put on any kind of cart. And not only that, it was to be carried on the shoulders of Levitical priests, even though later on David will build an ark for the, or cart for the ark, and we will see the tragic consequences that ensue from that. Now, with that as our backdrop, notice that when the Philistines return the ark to Israel, they put it on a cart, and yet nothing is going to happen to them. Do you know why? It's really simple. They did not know any better. And because of that, God in this case is not going to hold them responsible for their error. But Israel knows better, and we will see that God judges the Israelites because of the way that they handled the ark. Why the difference? Once again, because they knew better. This is straight from the mouth of Christ, Luke 12:47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. That teaches us that God will judge each man by the amount of light they have received and understood. Now this is verse 9 that we looked at last week. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beshemes, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. I love that last phrase. Despite the overwhelming evidence that they are facing, they still don't really want to believe. They are still thinking that all of this could have just happened by chance. Well, things haven't changed much, have they? Many people think things happen by chance. Some will even say that the world was created by chance. People who are otherwise very, are very intelligent can fall into this delusion. Jacques Minot, a biochemist, wrote this, Chance alone is at the source of every innovation, of all creation in the biosphere. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind, at the root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. What he calls the stupendous evidence or edifice of evolution, I call the stupidity of evolution. As I said in the past, there are many atheist scientists who laugh at the idea of evolution. Oh, don't get me wrong, they don't believe in a creator, but they also know that evolution is scientifically impossible. But in saying that, realizing that nothing happens by chance shouldn't make us think that every event is full of important meaning from God. Some things just happen. They have no great eternal purpose that we can discern. I think Christians can sometimes get off track trying to find a message from God in every little thing. But even the things that may seem unimportant, God will still use in our life. 
But that raises a question. But if everything is fulfilling God's plan, then how come is my life so tough? Why did I or someone else have to go through a great tragedy? Now, when we think like this, it shows that we don't understand God's goal for our lives, which is to make us godly, not just make us comfortable. God is far more concerned about making us holy than he is making us happy. It also shows that we're looking too short, not trusting God to work out things in eternity. It also shows we're looking too narrow and don't consider God is doing things outside of what we can see. And finally, it shows that we are looking to ourselves and acting as if God owes us an explanation on everything that he does. We have to accept that there is going to be some things in life that we just can't figure out and leave it up to God to figure those things out. I tell new Christians, whenever you get saved, you have to embrace mystery because you're not going to understand everything. Now, people often quote Romans 8.28 concerning this. It says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. How can the death of my loved one, my job loss, or my broken heart ever work out for my good? Well, here's the thing. We have to read that verse in context of what does the Lord mean when he says good. We think good is prosperity and happiness. But when we read that next verse in Romans 8, we see what God considers to be good. This is Romans 8:29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That teaches us that the good mentioned there in verse 28 is the Lord conforming and molding us into the image of Christ. And sometimes that has to happen through suffering and heartache. So now that we know that, anything that happens in our life, we now know that one, God allowed it, and two, he will use it to make us a little bit more like his son. All right, back to 1 Samuel. So now we have these cows who have had their calves taken away from them and who have never been hitched to a yoke before, becoming the fleece that I spoke of earlier. Now, the Philistines were correct in thinking that only God could cause the cows to willingly leave their young. Leaving their calves behind was going against all natural instincts. It was obvious these cows were being supernaturally led by the Lord. I guess we could call them holy cows. I bet the Philistines were utterly amazed. Sorry about that. I had to milk it for all it was worth. (laughs) Deep down, Lord forgive me, they probably didn't believe that the cows would follow that direct road to Beth Shemesh. But they were wrong. The Lord of the Philistines didn't know the true and the living God, but the cows did, and they obeyed him. Isaiah 1.3 says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. The direct path taken by the cows is emphasized in our passage. It was as though they were on a highway. And notice the cows lowing as they went suggests they were being driven against their natural inclinations by a power beyond them, which, of course, they were. From my study on this passage, I learned that cows will not naturally ever leave their grazing land. It also tells us that they stayed on the road. In other words, they're denying all their natural instincts and habitat. 
What a miracle. Two cows who have never pulled a cart before, either alone or together, no driver leaves them, yet they leave home and march the ten miles or so to a city that they had never been to. They leave their own calves behind and go straight on a certain road with never a wrong turn, never a stop, never turning aside in the fields to feed themselves, and never turning back to their own calves. It says they were lowing as they went. This means the cows were not especially happy about what was going on. They were longing for their calves at home, yet they still did the will of God. Those cows are a good example for us, by the way. There will be times in life when doing the will of God goes against every one of our natural inclinations and desires. But if we would be like Christ, we must do the task at hand, even if we moan in pain throughout the entire thing. In fact, there's a little subtle Hebrew humor here. We have seen that the Jews will not walk the straight path. We have seen that the Gentiles will not walk the straight path. But at least the cows will walk the straight and the narrow. I told you they were holy cows. So envision this scene as you're just there working in the field like you always have been, and suddenly you see the ark of God coming your way. It says they rejoiced to see it. What joy! They probably felt something like the disciples felt on the day they saw the resurrected Jesus because they felt they had finally had God received back from the dead. Now, this also reminds me of a New Testament truth. Just exchange the cows for a donkey and the ark for a king. Doesn't it sound like the triumphal entry when Jesus came riding in on a donkey? And just like our account today, the people rejoiced and were glad. And do you know why the people rejoiced? Because there are more important things in life than being happy, healthy, and prosperous, and that is being right with Almighty God. And I hope we understand that this life is our one shot at getting it right. This is not the preseason. This is the Super Bowl. What we do and who we are become, who we become here determines what we get to do and who we will be throughout all of eternity. And yet, sadly, there are people who spend more time and energy preparing for retirement than they do preparing for eternity. And let me say, we may not make it to retirement age. All of us are all only one heart attack or one aneurysm for meeting eternity. So we're all going to make it there one way or the other. So I plead with you to always keep that in mind. Verse 14 and the ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, the cart, I'm sorry, and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, and which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. The cows came to rest in a field of a man named Joshua. What does Joshua translate to in Aramaic? It is the name Jesus. We know nothing else about this Joshua, but his name is enough to catch our attention. The ark's re-entry into the land is associated with a man named Joshua, namesake of the famous Joshua who led the Israelites out of the land after the Exodus. And notice the cow stopped at the place they would be sacrificed. 
And at that place of sacrifice, light will come into the nation. This is also an echo from Calvary, where just like those cows, the Lord carried the law and all of its requirements and laid down his life at the cross, the ultimate place of sacrifice. And since Shiloh had been destroyed and there was no sanctuary available for worship, they used a large rock as an altar. But the Lord still accepted their offerings. What the Lord is looking for is a broken and contrite heart, not a slavish obedience to the letter of the law. So in this particular case, even though what the Jews did was wrong, their heart was right with God, and so he allowed this indiscretion. So are you saying we don't have to obey the Scripture if we feel that our heart is right with God? Well, of course not. Because if we are truly right with God, we will want to obey his word. And we will soon see what happens when people knowingly disobey him and have conduct that is prohibited by Scripture. Look at verse 16 for just one quick comment. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. There were five of them, one for each of the Philistine cities. With the mice, however, they went far beyond the suggested offering. Perhaps they decided to add a golden mouse for every city, town, or village. I guess this is better to be safe than sorry. Verse 19, Then he struck the men of Beshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. It would be nice if the story ended at verse 18. You might recall, we began looking at the story of the ark in chapter 4 by considering what we called the problem of the power of God. We have seen that the Israelites could not presume upon the power of God, and the Philistines could not defy the power of God. And at the end of this extraordinary story, we're learning the sobering news that the power of God was no less terrifying at the end than it was at the beginning of the sequence of events. All the humor that has been part of this story and all the mockery of the Philistines stops at this point. There is nothing funny now. The return of the ark did not signify that God was less terrifying than he had ever been. If he was not to be mocked and ridiculed in the pagan land, set up beside the god Dagon, he was not to be taken lightly in Israel either. If the pagan Philistines were judged by the way they treated the ark, how much more responsible were the Jews who knew the law and were living in a Levitical city? It seems they had taken too lightly the forbearance of God. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and long patience? Do you not know it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? It says they looked into the ark of the Lord. What's the big deal with that? I think two questions come to mind. First, why did the man of Beshemesh look into the ark? 
And secondly, why was this so wrong in God's sight? We find this in the book of Numbers, chapter 4. This is the work of the Kohathites in the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and cover the ark of the testimony with it. They are to cover this with hides of sea cows, spread a cloth of blue over it, and put the poles in place. But the Kohathites must not go in and look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. So it's not like God didn't give people fair warning. We need to remember that access to God in the Old Testament was not a simple thing. The high priest could only approach once a year, and that after many sacrifices. And when he approached God, he had bells on the borders of his garments and a rope tied around his ankle. As he was in the Holy of Holies, the other priests would stand outside listening for the bells. If the bells would ever stop ringing, they knew there was some flaw in the priest or in the offering and that he had been smitten dead before the holiness of God. Then they would pull him out by that rope. They wouldn't dare go in themselves. The holiness of God was something that was very respected back in those days. Tragically, I think, we run the risk of that we really don't respect the holiness of God much today. These people should have known better, but that brings up a principle that we need to consider. God holds us to a higher standard and a higher level of accountability than your garden variety pagan. This is why we can't look around the world and say, well, everybody else is doing it. May I say to us, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. We are to be different. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you should be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So we see that God holds his children to a different standard. What was the great mistake that they made? They lifted the lid off the Ark of the Covenant. And that may not sound like such a big deal, but that lid that they lifted off just wasn't called a lid. It was called the mercy seat. In New Testament, we learn that the mercy seat is embodied in Jesus Christ. And when the translators describe the mercy seat in the Old Testament, they use the word propitiation that we find in the New Testament. What does propitiation mean? It means to satisfy a payment or a debt. In the case of Christ, it meant to satisfy the debt of mankind's sin so we could enjoy a relationship with God. So what we're seeing in 1 Samuel here is a picture of sinful men wanting to have a relationship with God without a mediator. But here's the thing. Anytime you have perfect holiness and perfect justice come into contact with sinners, you have to have judgment of some kind. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Sinful man coming into contact with a holy God, and judgment and death is the result. That is why the Bible clearly states that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is that man, Christ Jesus. In the book of Numbers, God specifically declared that no man was looking to the holy things that were covered. It seemed that some of the men of Beth Shemesh looked at the ark in some improper way. Now, this could not mean simply that they saw it. Everybody saw it. 
but some gazed as they should not have gazed. The description is no clearer than that. But the consequences were terrible. Over 50,000 people died. Now, in the case of the ark, that meant that the law was not to be looked upon without the covering of mercy. As I just said, it was even called the mercy seat. But if we aren't careful, we can do the same thing. I know about this. Maybe you do too. I need to look into the situation, I'll say. There seems to be a violation. I need to get to the bottom of this matter. So I lay aside mercy and look into the law to try to get to the bottom of the issue. But every time I do that, something within me dies. Whenever mercy is removed, even for a moment, whenever mercy is set aside, something in me will always die. One day the prophet Nathan came to David and said, A rich man in the kingdom wanted to fix a dinner for his friend. But instead of taking one of his numerous sheep, he took his neighbor's only lamb, a family pet, and served it instead. What, David said? That man must surely die. Nathan looked at him and said, David, that man is you. You have everything you could want. You took another man's little lamb when you stole Bathsheba from Uriah the Hittite. 2 Samuel 12. After that, David would later pray, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Why? Because when he removed the mercy seat to deal with the matter of the hypocritical or the the (laughs) hypothetical, hypothetical, uh, delete that out, would you? (laughs) He shouldn't have done that, that's what we're saying. But the last thing I want us to consider is the temptation to do what we clearly know is wrong. In our account this morning, that meant looking into the ark. But there are many ways to enjoy things that are forbidden. When we are tempted either by our own desires or by the nudgings of the devil, I don't think the point is, at least initially, to do something unthinkable. The goal is to make the unthinkable more and more reasonable. And then, when it doesn't seem so bad anymore, when it seems trite and harmless, when it seems like the next logical step, it seems to, go, it seems to be all right to go ahead and take a bite out of the forbidden fruit, that's when we are in the most danger. Ever since that tragic choice in the Garden of Eden, temptation has been the default setting for life on this planet. But I feel safe in saying most of us won't just pluck the fruit and start eating. Instead, we just get curious about what it might taste like. We wonder about other people who have eaten it. Did they like it? Are we missing out? Isn't it unfair they get to try some and we don't? Why should we be the only ones left out? And so we begin to listen to the lies of the serpent. You can almost imagine Satan whispering in the ear of Eve. God never said you couldn't pick the fruit, did he? He said you just weren't supposed to eat it, right? Well, go on. Just pick it off the tree. Good. Now smell it. He never said you couldn't smell it. There can be nothing wrong with smelling a piece of fruit. There. Now lick it. It's not the same as eating. God was clear about you not eating it, but he never said one thing about licking it. Well, and so it goes until we finally decide to take that first bite. You see, it's easier to take that bite once the fruit is in your hand and once you've touched it with your tongue. And as I close, I wonder if what happened was a result of what sometimes happens today. 
people rationalize that God does not mean what he says. The serpent began this ploy as far back as the Garden of Eden. You don't think God would really kill you, do you, Eve? Perhaps the people of Bethlehem said, I know God says in his holy law that things are supposed to be handled in such a way and only certain people should be able to do that, but that's not politically correct. People tell us that everyone should be equal in every sense and no function should ever exclude some and not others. We want inclusivity and not the narrow road the Bible commands. Do you know what Jesus had to say about that? This is Matthew 7:13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are only a few that find it. And so given the choice between listening to Dr. Phil or Oprah or listening to Jesus, I'm going to have to go up the Nazarene every single time. So come back next week and we'll see that Samuel, the boy that we left, has now become a man and is reintroduced to us in chapter 7. And I'll try to use smaller words next time so I don't get messed up. Lord, we're so thankful that uh, you have become that mercy seat for us, that uh, we're all guilty under your law. Everyone, including me, is only worthy of judgment. But you became that mercy seat for us. And now when God looks upon us, he looks through you and only sees you. We are so thankful for that, Lord. We pray that we would take these truths with us, Lord, and, and think about them today and be thankful. Ask in your name. Amen.